Hi everyone, welcome again to VLGA Connect and it's time for the weekly governance update proudly brought to you by Hunt and Hunt Lawyers and starring Stephen Cooper of the VLGA. Hello Stephen. Oh, hello Chris, only second to you and um, is this the week in governance where nothing happened? No, no, we're yet to come across that week. <laughs> My list is quite long, uh, so we should get cracking. Uh, you made the observation to me quite rightly so that we're in that period where councils are adopting their council plans because they had until the end of October. A few went earlier in the year, but yeah. um, there's a lot being adopted now. Which is there's a lot of work being done and, and props to councillors, council officers, communities that got involved. That is um, seriously important strategic work that will um, stand those councils in good stead for the next um, three years of their term. Have you got a sense of how many councils are calling their council plan a council plan still? Because it seems to me most have gone down the path of a community plan in title. I think there's a healthy dose of creativity in the naming, Chris, which is, um, which is to be applauded. And all in support of those community visions uh, of a 10-year or longer period as well, which is uh, great to see. Uh, Steve, one of the stories that's attracted a lot of attention, a lot of attention this week, and it play played out over the course of about five days, was the CEO of Swan Hill, who's now resigned but was subject of media speculation around his vaccination status. Yeah, so, um, and that had been quite public, as you said, Chris, but I thought um, a couple of things. Uh, well handled by everyone. Um, it was clearly, um, for anyone who listened to our interview with uh, Hunt and Hunt's Richard Scoogle a couple of weeks ago, this question of vaccinations in the workplace and the industrial relations implications is not going to go away. And we might talk about that in another context later. So it was always going to be difficult for a CEO um, who had not been vaccinated to perform their role. But it also reminded me, Chris, of um, you know, often we talk about um, those occasions where personal values clash with your organisational values or responsibilities. And, you know, here's a live case. And uh, I think credit to John McLinden for, uh, for stepping away uh, with the grace that he did. Indeed. And it must have been under immense pressure for those uh, few days, which uh, shouldn't be ignored either. Um, Steve, you uh, reminded me of a famous case from about six years ago, which you could sort of equate in terms of you know, personal values conflicting with a professional uh, responsibility. The absolute poster child in this case is Kim Davis, the uh, Kentucky County Clerk who, uh, contrary to state law, refused to um, officiate over same-sex marriages and even in the face of a Supreme Court order, still refused and, in fact, went to jail for the privilege. Now, not everyone who has... Um, a clash between their personal and their organisational responsibilities is expected to kind of go to that extreme and be locked up. But it's a really good start, even with sort of some of the day to day things. If you don't actually agree with a policy or you've got a particular value or position to actually understand that when you're at work, the, you know, the position of the organisation is paramount, the values of the organisation. You made me think of Darren Hinch then too, another famous case going back back quite some years now. Um, but there's a very fresh example playing out at the moment, Steve. Have you seen this? The um, the Fair Work Commission deputy president, who's expressed a view on vaccine mandates, has now been barred from uh, considering or sitting on any matters relating to workplace vaccinations in the future. Mm, and the and the Fair Work Commission president is anticipating that there'll be more of these cases coming before 
the commission and someone who's expressed such a strong personal view may well be conflicted, may well be, uh, I suppose, accused of having a, an apprehended bias and not giving a fair hearing. So uh, as I understand, Chris, um, the Deputy Pres President has been uh, stood aside for many of those matters. Yes, um, spoken social media apparently about um, public health measures implemented during the pandemic. I was interested to learn that the president of the Fair Work Commission doesn't have power to discipline members, but what the president has done is directed the deputy president to, uh, president to attend training on responsibilities and standards of professional conduct expected of a member of a commission. And as we said, uh, she'll be excluded from all and any further full bench work until she's completed that training and has been disqualified on the grounds of bias from adjudicating disputes relating to workplace vaccinations in future. Wow, there's a lot going on there, Chris. Actually, can I just segue, though, seeing as we're talking about social media, uh, to the IBAX Operation Turon report that, that was released um, this week, which is an unusual one because it doesn't necessarily point to the sort of corruption that we would normally expect IBAC um, to investigate, but at its heart is comments made on social media using a pseudonym. Yes, social media rears its head in various ways, doesn't it? Here's another example. So what's the lesson here? There's the one thing that jumped out at me is uh, there's a policy gap clearly, isn't there? Yeah, let's just go back a step, Chris. Um, so this was the matter of former Assistant Commissioner Brett Guerin, who um, it was found had used uh, three pseudonyms to make comment um, at times around matters that were subject of police investigation. And what the IBAC did find in, in amongst a number of things was that certain of the comments relied on information derived um, from his role uh, as a police member. Mm. Um, I'll just actually just digress for a moment, Chris. There is a line in Hamilton that's pretty apt, actually. Yes, what is that? <laughs> there is. Who would have seen it that when... Um, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson were fierce rivals. And when Jefferson left the party to stand for uh, president, Hamilton said, I'll write, I'll use a pseudonym. You'll see what I can do to him. <laughs> uh, just like you to weave Hamilton in. It's been a while. It's been a while. So. Look at how I've, I've missed it. But it often, it sort of goes to the point, though, at times as to why don't people use their real names? Not necessarily about this, but more generally. Um so yes, and as you've just touched on, what the report identified was some policy gaps, which I think have been identified, uh, addressed in part already um, at VicPol, but also would be worth considering, and you'd, you'd imagine would be a trend in regard to social, use of social media um, by employees. So it's been a week for reports, Steve. You've got that one. There's a lot of reading in the Operation Turon report. The Victorian Ombudsman has brought out her annual report this week. And uh, sad to report that the most complained about public bodies over the course of that 12 months was local councils. <laughs> I heard the Ombudsman um, had a session a few weeks ago say that the top two were the prison system and or the correction system and local government. And given that the, in the... In any, um, any, I'll call it a prison, um, there is a hotline where people can ring the Ombudsman. So it's no surprise that Corrections Victoria is 
complain about. It's also no surprise, and I think the Ombudsman touches on it, given the, the number of interactions that the community have with local government over a range of issues, that local government ranks highly. So, you know, that's just part of the landscape, I suppose. That is, that's exactly what she said, Steve. And the issues complained about, uh, she says, were similar to previous years, how councils communicated with ratepayers, uh, followed by how the complaint was handled. And then she touches on uh, the work she's done around um, uh, good practice for complaints handling, as well as the review of financial hardship by ratepayers, which was another of the key topics affecting local councils that plays out in the Ombudsman's annual report, which is available for all to read, tabled in Parliament yesterday. Yep. And Chris, the breadcrumb I noticed um, through the document was around human rights obligations. And... Um, and I get the sense that the Ombudsman is alert to her responsibilities as, I guess, the venue for complaints about human rights. So this won't go away. It also points to a question of competency, I suppose, for um, any public sector employee. Now, I might be oversimplifying this because I'm not a human rights specialist, but my understanding is there is only one of the human rights that is unalienable, and that's the one about cruel, inhumane treatment and torture type stuff. And it's, I'll just leave it out there that that, that human right shouldn't be compromised by any other public interest. Um, draw your own conclusions. Other human rights might be read in conjunction with where is the public interest. But what that also suggests is that um, any public official in making a decision that affects someone's human rights needs to go through an analysis as to whether that human right is outweighed by the public interest. You know, and the simple example being, people have a human right to free uh, to free movement, but in the interests of public safety, um, you know, government's allowed to say you're only allowed to drive on the left hand side of the road. And so, the other example I think that was referred to a lot was the the uh, the housing uh, issue during the pandemic and those particular housing sites that were locked down very quickly. Um, and she makes a few points about the human rights implications of those. Decisions. Yeah, and, and I think in that sense, Chris, I mean, there's been a few matters that, have, you know, in, in this COVID time have gone to the Supreme Court of Victoria and the court has ruled on the side of government typically. But it would be really good to see a, a very public exposure of how organisations, you know, weigh up those decisions about the public interest versus human rights. While we're talking about the Ombudsman, Steve, don't become the headline. <laughs> Yes. In fact, a, a terrific workshop on oh, earlier in the week. The, the days are all a blur, Chris. I think it might have been Wednesday. Uh, we had the Ombudsman, uh, Commissioner Redlick from the um, uh, IBAC, who I've just been talking about, and Andrew Greaves, the uh, Auditor General. I guess the biggest takeaway for me out of that was uh, particularly some comments made by um, the Commissioner um, in regard to behaviours that mask corruption in the public sector and a fabulous little diagram around um, employees um, sometimes indirectly falling into corruption, um, colleagues not acting as they should, uh, supervisors not providing an environment where issues can be recorded or where people will take a blind eye. Um, the, one that was really telling I want to come back to is around internal governance and basically the culture set by senior leadership. So a really, um, I guess, whole of organisation approach um, being required to overcome this, Chris. 
question without notice, is that a webinar that is accessible for watching back, do you know? Chris, I'm not sure, but I presume so. It's under the heading of don't become the headline. So um, I think a search will uh, will actually find that. Um, one point I wanted to make, there was a rather excellent question, and I'm going to risk editorialising here for a moment. Uh, at the end of the session about what about where those internal controls that we've got are under-resourced. And it's really a risk in a rate capping environment where we don't cut services, but we cut what we might otherwise call overhead. So we don't have adequate contract management, procurement, governance teams are stretched, um, risk in OHS, you know, finance department not doing that kind of review work that they should. Um, some comments made there that it's really important for organisations to make sure that that second line of defence in our risk framework is adequately resourced. Sounds like it should be something on the agenda of everybody's next audit and risk committee, Steve. Could be, Chris. You know people. Now, um, another, there's another report, probably the last one, and of course this was a subject of discussion on uh, today's uh, excellent VLGA Connect panel with uh, Michael Stefanovic, David Wolfe and Julie Reid, and it's the Local Government Inspectorate's Review of Personal Interest Declarations of Victorian Councillors. Some pretty stunning numbers here, Steve. 650 councillors at 78 councils. Um, their return activity was reviewed between October 2016 and February 2020. And it was found that two out of every five councillors failed to disclose interests in one or more of their returns or failed to submit a return at all. Um, that's starting to sound like there's a real issue here. I was stunned by the numbers um, when I read the report earlier in the week, Chris, and nothing at that rather excellent panel <laughs> changed the stunning nature of the stat. So. It's, a, it, it's an important topic, and as was mentioned, it is at the heart of public confidence in the institutions that we work in, that people should know where um, councillors and public officials um, have interests. And, you know, there seemed like some glaringly obvious oversights. Now, even if some of the information under the new regime is no longer published, there is still a requirement, um, you know, for property zone to be included in your, in your return. And... Um, also, I guess, Chris, a lack of understanding about um, some of the requirements around trusts and beneficial interests, for example, where people have self-managed superannuation funds. Yeah, um, the inspector, Michael Stefanovic, um, said they did survey the non-compliant councillors and found that there was, there was sort of two issues, a lack of understanding of why it was important to do it and they didn't know how to do it but also a lack of guidance on how to complete returns as it was legalistic and difficult to understand, which has led to some um, pretty predictable recommendations, 14 of them, about improving compliance through education and guidance and potentially some legislative, legislative change. Chris, one thing we know um, about adult learning is that just-in-time is a good, uh, a good way to go about it. And I think planning... Uh, to do training with the government staff who support councillors and councillors concerned just before the um, the returns are due rather than in the induction would probably be a useful thing because some of it is complex. You know, anyone, anyone that um, has a self-managed superannuation fund, for example, you have two legal entities, one of which you're the trustee and the other which you have a beneficial interest in. So actually being able to work through and understand it um, becomes really important.
Very wise advice there, Steve. Hopefully people will take uh, something from that. There is a coincidence, of course, and it was reported in the media yesterday that the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, had some issues in completing his, I've got to get this right, foreign interest, foreign influence register declaration. Oh. A, <laughs> A, because of some difficulties with the federal government website and um and there was a public servant helping him. And then when he lost the public servant on the phone, he got put on hold. So, oh dear. <laughs> um, but it goes to the point that you need to know what you're doing. You, it, for anyone, councillors and officers filling in these in, you need to take the time. This is not a tick and flick exercise and those horrendous stats sort of just point to that. All right, I want to finish on a couple of interstate notes, Steve, because we've been very Victorian focused just for a change <laughs> this week. But we can't not mention what's happening at Kuringai Council in uh, in Sydney. Um, I reported this on the local government news roundup earlier in the week. There were seven. Yes, I'm about to say your abacus is getting a real workout on this. Isn't it? <laughs> well, there were at that point there were there were seven consecutive instances of the council failing to achieve a quorum and having to adjourn meetings and try again. I believe it's now eight. Um, most of those apply to uh, attempted meetings to deal with the, the CEO, the general manager's uh, performance review issues, um, and the others are about an ordinary meeting. And I understand this stems back to the last mayoral election in September when uh, there was a change of mayor at that council. Chris, is it fair to say there's a schism in that council, that there's some voting patterns that are routinely adhered to? I do think that's fair, that is fair to say. And um, uh, not surprisingly, the local government watchdog in New South Wales has said publicly they are keeping an eye on what's happening at that council. Now, um, we've talked before about calls of the council and things like that. I think it's just a reminder, Chris, that um, certainly in the Victorian legislation, one of the roles of the councillor is to participate in the decision-making process, which I think is code for turn up at meetings. It is. And uh, as I think we've talked about before, um, I've got the uh, distinct uh, honour and pleasure and uh, um, record memory of uh, having participated in a call of the council process at a governance level. And uh, the other one which you drew my attention to is a case of uh, bullying being called out at Bega Valley Shire. Now there's a clip online, we're not going to play it here, but we'll put a link up in the show notes to show this rather extraordinary uh, incident that played out at that council uh, this week. You've watched it. I've, I've got to say, Chris, and, and you and I, I think we pride ourselves on not being gobsmacked by too much, probably say gobsmacked too often, but I was gobsmacked by this just in a sense at the speed at which the council meeting just went to custard. It degenerated um, very quickly, didn't it? Is it ever. And it was at a level where, you know, there was a point of order called, um, one of the councillors said something like, no, I didn't call you a lunatic. I said you appear to be a lunatic. Now, if you've got that kind of banter going on, the mayor has no hope of restoring order. You've not got a group of people who are going to resolve their differences in a way that's restorative where everyone's happy about it. And it just struck me as being a worthwhile watch um, and also a bit of a sign as to why councils, you know, any group needs to work early on how they, I think that the, the the buzz phrase at the moment is how to have better disagreements. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we've just seen a, a, a slice of this council in action. It's only two minutes. It's on the ABC News website. I will just make the point it is an, an example of a male councillor allegedly bullying a female councillor. And uh, it's the sort of behaviour that we've heard a lot of discussion about as to how we can make it a more even playing field for, for people to participate in an adult and safe way in the process. <laughs> Yeah, we started um, the session today talking about the great strategic work that a whole lot of councillors have done, which was really pointing to the importance of, you know, being bold, having great ambition, getting the best for communities. That sort of behaviour, you know, we're back to really talking about the obligation for a safe workplace. All right, Steve, we might wrap it up there. Who knows what we'll be talking about next week? I make the, the point that uh, nominations for New South Wales Council elections are open as we speak and they close next Wednesday. So there'll no doubt be some coverage uh, post that of who's put their hand up or who hasn't. And you've just reminded me that voting closes at 6pm tonight in the South Gippsland Shire and maybe... Um, yes. Thank yeah. you for the reminder. We haven't talked about that. Uh, of course, the um, that election, the voting period was extended by a week because uh, 9,000 ballot packs basically didn't get delivered. They went missing and had to be reprinted. Exactly, and they were reprinted in a different colour. So there's traceability and um, assurity, I suppose, that... Um, that the election result is valid and fair. So uh, we'll probably be talking about that next week or at least uh, in the next few weeks. Thanks, Steve. Great Let's do that. As always, another good week in governance land. Terrific. Thanks, Chris. Steve Cooper, Chief of Staff of the VLGA. That's the governance update brought to you by Hunt and Hunt Lawyers from VLGA Connect. And we look forward to joining you again very soon. Bye for now.